Hey folks, we're turning to uh, John chapter 2 this evening, John chapter 2, um, very well known portion of scripture. Uh, this is where we find recorded the first public miracle of the Lord Jesus, really the first time he reveals his, uh, reveals any kind of supernatural power uh, to anybody. Uh, and he does it at the wedding at Cana, which is covered in this chapter. And the chapter also goes on to speak of the um, overturning of the tables in the, the, the tables in the temple. Uh, so we'll read the whole chapter together and just uh, step through it as we, as we go along. So let's read John chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 1. It says there, On the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. We'll end the reading there, and we thank the Lord for his word to us. Now, I don't know if you remember much about whenever you were learning to drive. Uh, some of you experienced it a lot more recently than others. Uh, I went through the ordeal in the late 90s, which I know is very hard to believe. Uh, but I was one of the first batch of spotty young teenagers that did the driving theory test. Um, I can remember spending hours studying the little highway code book in preparation for this, this theory test, learning various different road signs, some of which I'm pretty sure I've never seen in all the time I've been on the road. 
But it's an important thing to learn whenever you're driving because signs are, are there for a purpose. They're there to instruct a motorist on what to expect next. They're there to demand a response from the driver. They're there to demand a change of habit, an adjustment in behavior, an awareness of changing conditions. They're there to provide warnings of oncoming danger. Signs are vitally important. And as you go through the Gospel of John, from the great declarations in chapter 1, right through to the resurrected Lord in chapter 21, you'll see signs that reveal who Jesus is and why he came. You'll see miracles, prophecies, teachings, all of which, like the signs in the road, point us to what's coming next. All of which demand a response from our hearts. And all of which warn us of the danger that is to come. In fact, in John 20 verse 30, we read that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in these book, this book. But these are written. We might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing we might have life through his name. The book of John is full of signs. And in this chapter, I think there's three of them. Three signs that effectively confirm the truths that are revealed in John chapter 1, that famous chapter in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the first sign we have is the sign of his glory. The sign of his glory. And this takes place at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it seems that Cana was only a few miles away from Nazareth where the Lord Jesus grew up. So we're likely talking about the marriage of a close friend or a family member. Lord Jesus was there, his mother was there. I'm sure his brothers and sisters were there. Even the disciples had been invited to this wedding. And we read in verse 3 that they were looking for wine because the wine had run out. Now that was a big thing to happen at a Jewish wedding. Typically the groom... And his family would have taken great pride in being able to feed all of the guests and to look after them and to provide for them. So to not have enough wine would have been a real embarrassment to them. And maybe wanting to save their embarrassment, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him, maybe knowing that he could fix it, and said they have no wine. Remember at this point the Lord Jesus hadn't fully revealed himself really to anyone. And he said, woman, mine hour has not yet come. Now, it sounds like he's being disrespectful. He certainly wasn't. But he was being firm. This was the son of God. He responded to a higher authority than his mother. He had a higher purpose, a higher purpose than to be some performing waiter at a, at a, at a wedding. That was effectively what she was asking him to do. She was asking him to perform. And yet somehow Mary knew that this was exactly the time for Jesus to reveal his glory. She goes to the servants and she says, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Isn't that wonderful? See the confidence that she had in the Son of God. Now this wasn't merely looking at her little boy all grown up and thinking he could do things. It wasn't even that she suspected that he was a little bit special. Mary knew that he was the one who held creation in the palm of his hand. She knew he had the power. Now, how exactly that all worked, I don't think she understood. I don't think I understand. But she believed it. She believed in the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was her belief in his ability that caused him to reveal his glory. His time hadn't come, not in full. So much still had to be accomplished, but in response to his mother's belief. 
Jesus allowed his glory to be seen. But only by a select few. I think that's pretty special. I'm sure many of you here can testify to the blessing of seeing God's glory revealed. Maybe just to you. Maybe just to a select few. At a time when you truly believed in his ability. When you prayed believing he would move. When you called on him to intervene in a particular situation. And you saw the glory of God. That's pretty special. Mary had belief in his ability, but notice that the servants were obedient to his command. The Lord said, fill the pots with water. Now you think about that. Fill the pots. There were six water pots and he told them to go and fill them all. And verse 7 says that they filled them to the brim with regular tasteless water. That's all they put in. They didn't leave room for anything else. And then immediately the Lord asked them to draw it out. The water they literally just put in with no room for anything else. They were told to draw it out and take it to the governor of the feast. Now Jesus hadn't touched it. He hadn't put anything in it. He hadn't performed any kind of visible ritual on it. In obedience they were simply drawing out the water they'd put in. And serving it to the ruler of the feast. Do you know how mad that sounds? These servants could have lost their jobs. They could have lost all credibility. They could have become a laughing stock. Their job, you talk about having one job. I mean, that was it for them. Their job was to serve. And here they were about to serve water instead of wine. Bold as you like, but they did it because Jesus told them to. They didn't question it. They didn't try and reason it out. They simply obeyed the command of the Lord. How often have we chosen not to step out in faith at the command of God because we feared it would be too awkward, too uncomfortable, too embarrassing? How often have you chosen not to obey the command of the Lord because it didn't make logical sense? When you cared more about the reason than you did about the faith. Cared more about the opinion of man than following the will of God. I can think of times, and I think about them very vividly. When I didn't speak for Christ, knowing full well, he had just given me the opportunity. But the reason I didn't do it was because I was scared what other people would think of me. I didn't do it because they would think I was mad. These servants went to the governor of the feast and poured out the water they just put in. But they did it because Jesus told them. The servants obeyed. Mary had belief in his ability. The servants obeyed his command. And notice that the water was changed by his power. Just at the moment that needed to be. It was changed. It was no longer water. He changed the water into wine. And not only that, he changed it into the best wine. Verse 9, the governor of the feast calls for the bridegroom and says, everyone at the beginning sets forth the good wine. Until the people have well drunk, until they're effectively drunk, then they serve that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see, the governor noticed the change, but he didn't know where it had come from. 
The bridegroom benefited from the change. He got the credit. But he didn't know the source. Of course, it was by the power of Almighty God. It was by the hand of Messiah. But who knew that? Who at the feast knew what had happened? It was the servants. It's only the servants. The lowest group of people at the wedding. Not the governor. Not the bridegroom. Not the guests, but the servants. When Jesus chose to reveal his glory for the very first time, he revealed it to servants. He rewarded their obedience and let them be the first to see the glory of the anointed. And to be honest, it's a story repeated throughout John. Jesus revealing himself to the outcasts. While the so-called enlightened Remained in darkness. The sign of his glory, not revealed to kings or to priests, not to the religious or to the wealthy, but to the humble servants of the Most High God. You know, we have an awesome privilege as the people of God to see the glory of Jesus revealed in our hearts. We've been changed by the power of the Son of God. And when we, <coughs> we think about this first part, of the chapter and the, the revelation of Jesus' glory, the thing that encourages me this evening is that the glory of Jesus brings noticeable change. The glory of Jesus brings noticeable change. It's a change that can't be ignored. The governor had no idea where, where it had come from. It made no sense to him whatsoever, but he couldn't deny it had changed. There was a change, and it was a change that couldn't be ignored. It was obvious. And in our lives, the glory of Jesus brings noticeable change. It does. As believers, we might not always feel like our life is showing out for Christ like it should. Like we're living the way we ought to. And to be honest, none of us are. But what the Lord has done in your heart is real. If the Spirit is alive within you, then change will be seen. It'll be seen. People will notice it. Maybe the people that you work with or people in your family, they'll attribute it to other things. Better medication, more sleep, a change of circumstances. But like the servants, you'll know exactly where it comes from. It comes from within. It comes from the Spirit of God. It's by revelation of the glory of Christ in our hearts. The glory of Jesus brings noticeable change. That's the sign of his glory. That's the first thing, the first sign that we see in this chapter. Second sign is the sign of his authority. We see the sign of his authority. After a few days in Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem for Passover and approaching the temple, they come across those who are selling birds and livestock for sacrifices and exchanging money. And in many ways, it was a necessary service. The currency at the time was the Roman coin, but Jewish law required a tribute of a half shekel to be paid into the temple. So they had to change money somewhere. Having money there, having animals there made sense. It wouldn't have been practical for all the people to bring their own animals. They were providing a service, so why did the Lord get so angry with them? Why did he make a scourge, a whip, and drive them out of the temple? 
Well, these people weren't merely providing a service. Think of it in terms of Port Stewart or Newcastle in the height of summer. All the little shops and stalls that sell the hats and the buckets and the spades. They're providing a service. But they know full well they can charge more for those things in the height of the summer at the beach than they can if they were standing in the centre of Belfast in December. Because there's a demand. People will pay for it because they need it and they're taking advantage of the demand. During the week of Passover, the population of Jerusalem would have grown from around 50 or 60,000 to as much as 2 million people. This was lucrative business. But what the Lord saw when he arrived at the temple wasn't people just trying to make a living. What the Lord saw when he arrived was a barrier. A barrier to the worship of God. Another step that the people were expected to take before they could bring their offerings to him. It makes me wonder, what barriers are we putting up to the worship of God? As a church, for example, what do people see when they come into our building? What impression do we give them when folk encounter us in work or at the shops? What attitude do we present to them? Is there a warmth, a tenderness? An approachability or are we cold and distant? When they look at us, do they see Christ or do they just think, oh, here we go again. I'm going to get another hammering about how I live. Do we concern ourselves more with highlighting sin in others than we do about humbly pointing them to Christ and his perfect holiness? What barriers are we putting up? And that could be attitude, it could be politics. Could be a whole host of secondary issues, things that matter to us. And they should. Things should matter to us. But they shouldn't be a barrier to someone coming to the Lord. What Jesus saw was a barrier. The Lord who had come to provide a way, who had come to break the barriers of ritual, of tradition, the oppression of religiosity, who had come to free the people from the burden of the law. The one who would say, I am the way, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Saw barriers at the temple. Keeping people from the true worship of God. And he was angry. Storms into the temple and claims it as the house of his father. This was a sign of his authority. And in demonstrating his authority over the oppressors, he demonstrated an uncompromising standard. He cleared out everything that offended. The coins were poured out, the tables were overturned, and the people were driven out. He cleared out everything that offended. Do we have that same level of uncompromising ruthlessness when it comes to sin and distraction in our lives? Those things that hold us back from the true worship of God, Jesus put them out. He drove all of them out of the temple. As well as his uncompromising standard, he also demonstrated the importance of uncontaminated service. If the people were going to worship the Father, if they were going to serve him with their giving, then Jesus wanted that to be as pure an experience as possible. Is our service pure? 
Do we go to church for the right reasons? Are we here to worship the Lord and to pray? Or are we just here because people would talk about us if we weren't? Do you show an interest in people's lives because it's expected? Or do you genuinely want to understand their needs so that you can share the love of Christ with them? Is our service pure? Is my service pure or is it tainted by pride? By apathy? By reluctance? Sometimes even resentment. Jesus wanted them to serve freely and without impurity. He said, my father's house will not be a house of merchandise. An uncompromising standard, uncontaminated service And in clearing out the temple, Jesus demonstrated unrivaled sovereignty. He was challenged. The Jews said to him in verse 18, What right, what sign have you been given that gives you the right to do this? But of course he did have the right. His sovereignty was unrivaled. He alone had the right to cleanse the temple. And it would be he who would ultimately purify it forever. When they saw his actions, the disciples in verse 17 remembered words from, Isaiah, or from Psalm 69, which speaks of David's heart's desire for a temple that would bring glory to the Father. The heart of King David ached with a burden to see God glorified among the nation and to see him dwell among his people. And when the disciples saw what Jesus did, they recalled that verse. The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. This wasn't a man out of control. It wasn't a rebel who wanted to cause a scene. This was the outworking of a heart. The heart of a rightful king who ached for the spiritual welfare of his people. He demonstrated unrivaled sovereignty. This act was a sign of his authority and listen, it brought pain. It brought correction. The authority of Jesus brought painful correction. It was unpleasant. It was brutal. But it was necessary. And often the correction of Jesus is difficult. It can be frightening. It can be uncomfortable. And there's nothing about this scene that makes us comfortable. If you were standing there watching this thing unfold, there's nothing that you would be at ease with. This was a very public correction. But at this point, all that mattered was the cleansing, not the comfort. Jesus didn't come to make people comfortable. He came to make them clean. And sometimes even in our own lives as genuine believers in Jesus Christ, sometimes the Lord Jesus has to step in and clear out the distractions. Drive out the barriers. And once again open a way for us to worship the Father in the pureness of spirit and truth. The authority of Jesus brings painful correction, but we have to let him do it. Because he alone is sovereign. It's his right. The sign of his glory, the sign of his authority. And finally, we have the sign of his purpose. Verse 
the sign of his purpose. Jesus, challenged by the Jews, tells them that although the temple will be destroyed, he would have the power to raise it up after three days. He was speaking of his body, speaking of his death, his cruel trial at the hands of the same Jews who were questioning him. What we see here is the hatred of enemy hearts. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that already they wanted to destroy him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him to pay for his petulant performance in the temple. That's what they wanted. What right did he have to tell them what to do? What sign have you been given that gives you the authority to do this? Folks, it's the same today. What right do you have to tell me that I need Jesus? What right do you have to tell me I'm a sinner? What sign do you have that allows you to preach that the only way I can have joy in my heart, the only way I can see heaven is through your Jesus? You've no right to tell me what to do. That's the hatred of enemy hearts. We see it everywhere. And the natural heart hates the Lord Jesus. Hates him. We shouldn't be surprised whenever we, we, whenever people give us grief. We shouldn't be surprised when comedians mock God or when script writers take a cheap shot at Christians because that's where the natural heart is. The natural heart hates Jesus. But in verse 22, we learn that the disciples, when the Lord later rose from the dead, remembered back to this exact moment, this exact point, and believed the word that he'd spoken. You see, although the natural heart hates Jesus, the natural heart can be implanted with truth. The Lord implanted the truth of the gospel in their heart. Verse 23 tells us that many believed on his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. His purpose, the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus was to bring truth and to implant the message of salvation into the hearts of men and women who would otherwise have hated them. But of course not all were willing to receive it. The reality of sinful man is that the majority will reject them. The vast majority of people we encounter on a daily basis have no desire for God, no interest in the things of God, no time for the people of God. And on those people, on those people, sadly, like in verse 24, the Lord will not commit. He will not entrust himself to them because he knows their heart. He knew the heart of the people. It's this age-old conflict between God's sovereignty and man's free will. The Lord will never force himself on anyone. And yet without the gift of faith, we simply can't believe. As believers, we have a responsibility to share the message of truth. But we never have the responsibility for who will receive it. And that's true even in our own families. You might have children, siblings, 
other members of your family and you feel burdened for their spiritual welfare, and you should. That's a good thing. How you live before them matters. What you choose to tell them and your responsibility to share words of truth matters. But how they respond is between them and the Lord. Because he alone knows their heart. You don't. We've seen already that the glory of Jesus brings noticeable change. The authority of Jesus brings painful correction. These last few verses remind us that the purpose of Jesus brings clear division. The purpose of Jesus brings division. Now he didn't come to divide. He came to heal. He didn't come to separate. He came to unite. But his purpose, the purpose of his coming, the revelation of his glory, the demonstration of his authority inevitably and invariably brings division. Families will be divided. Couples divided. Communities divided. Divided between those that have the truth implanted and those who choose to reject them. That's the reality of his coming. So then what does that mean for us? How does that affect our witness? Well, I don't think it does. Because we still need to tell them. We still need to preach the message of Jesus. still need to share the glory, the authority, the purpose of the Son of God. It's not for us to suddenly be selective about who the Lord will implant His truth into. We just need to tell them. Maybe the thing that changes is our attitude to it. It's not my convincing words that will bring them to Christ. It's His Spirit. It's not my imperfect life that will condemn them to hell. It's their own decision to reject them. There will be division. There will. And we are nothing more than one sent to proclaim the way of the Lord. But what an absolute privilege that is. To be able to point others to Jesus and to trust and to pray. That the Lord implants his truth in their hearts. And tonight we come together to pray. So let's pray. Let's pray specifically. Let's pray by name. Why not? Why not pray for the people the Lord has laid in our hearts? People we've told the truth to. And yet they've chosen thus far to reject it. Why not pray together for them? For the individuals we've shared the message of salvation with and who haven't responded. For children who no longer walk with the Lord. For parents advancing in years and not yet saved. Let's bring them before the Lord tonight. Why not? Let's pray for a change that everyone will see. Everyone. And when they see it, they'll bring glory to the Father in heaven. They'll bring glory to the one who made the change.
the one who saves the best until last. Can we do that tonight? We'll pray for those people. Just as we let our hearts settle in that thought, let's just take a few moments to sing a couple of verses of 385. Please. 385. Uh, oh, how sweet the glorious message. Simple faith may claim. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. Still he loves to save the sinful, heal the sick and lame, cheer the mourner, still the tempest. Glory to his name. Let's stand together and sing. We'll just sing the first three verses, please, um, standing to sing.